0: You're in church, don't lie. Six of you, come on. I think everybody has a little, little, little unsettling feeling about being in the dark, right? Have a little nightlight on just to kind of help you get through that. There's something um, you know, that uh, affects our, our sense of well-being, our sense of security maybe, sense of serenity. There's something that's a little off-putting and off-settling about, about darkness. In fact, when they surveyed people and they asked, what are the things you fear most? The top 10 things you fear most. Number three was fear of the dark. You know what number one was? Public speaking. You know what was behind it? Death. So what I do, people would actually rather die than do what I do. But number three was, uh, was, was the fear of darkness. Now, our kids understand that. We have kids. We know our kids are a little afraid of the light. We have a little nightlight thing going sometimes. And honestly, as parents, sometimes we don't really help them with that. We say things to them like uh, like this at night. We say, um, um, say good night, sleep tight. And then what's the last line? Don't let the bed bugs bite. Yeah, there may be little animals crawling on you, sucking blood out of you at night, but sleep good, sleep tight. Or we pray this little prayer with them, right? Now, say this with me. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And then this line, if I should... What in the world? If I should die before I wait? Don't you go dine on me now, kids. I'll see you in the morning for breakfast. So part of it, you can kind of understand why people are afraid of the dark, right? A little scared at night. I heard about a little boy was crying out for his mom. It's one of those dark stormy nights. Mom, he said, I'm afraid. Mom, come in, I'm afraid. She said, honey, you'll be fine. You're okay, we're just across the hall. You're fine. Mom, I still want you, I'm afraid. She said, I'm here with dad. I can't come, dad wants me to stay. There was a pause and he says, dad's a big sissy. (laughs) So I guess to some degree or another, to some extent or another, we were a little uneasy about the darkness, but you know, we use that being in the dark, we use that term figuratively as well. Uh, we say to someone who may not be uh, uh, informed, we say, ah, oh, they're just in the dark. They didn't know that, I didn't tell, they're just they're in the dark. Or, or we say that someone maybe that um, uh, just didn't have the right facts, they were in the dark. They, they, they spoke up and they shouldn't have, they really spoke up, they were, just, they were just in the dark. Or we say that concerning someone who was just completely unaware, right? There's just no filter. This is in the dark, they just didn't understand. But when you look into the Bible, do you know it's a, it's a, it's a phrase, it's a concept, it's a word, it's a metaphor that God uses over a hundred times to describe the relationship that people have with him when they do not know him. The relationship he says people have with me is that they are just, they're in the dark. Isaiah said they're groping for light, they're looking for light. Someone has described people as having this God-shaped hole or vacuum in their heart. uh, Darkness, looking for for light. And so we understand how that is in a spiritual context, how people who are away from God are are lost. People who are away from God can be in spiritual despair. God says simply, they're in darkness. Darkness. In fact, that's the exact setup that I want you to consider as we look at our text this morning, because Jesus is going to use this incredible idea, this amazing reality to describe who he is in relationship to who we are. The next I am that we're going to discover this morning is when Jesus says famously, I am the light (laughs) and not just the light for you. I'm the light, light for the world. And the context with which he says that is powerful. It was during a period of time where they were celebrating uh, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Now, that was a huge festival in Israel that happened every year. Uh, Typically, uh, on our calendar, it would be sometime in September or October. It was a festival, a celebration. People would camp out all around the temple area. Uh, Imagine, if you will, NASCAR in the Speedway, right? You drive by and you see thousands and thousands of people camped out around the Speedway. Well, that was what it looked like in the temple area. You had Jewish people from all over the then known world who would come in, camp out, sleep in tents, hang out, fellowship with one another. And there were several symbolic things that would happen. And the point of the Feast of Tabernacles was to remind them of what their forefathers experienced when they wandered out of Egypt through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. The light, if you will, that guided them. You remember the story, was a pillar of cloud by day, and it was a pillar of fire by night. And that light represented God's presence with his people. As long as they could follow the cloud, they knew they were on track. As long as they could see the fire, they knew that they were where they were supposed to be. So it it represented God's presence with his people. It was a form of protection over his people. It was a reminder how God provided throughout the wilderness for his people. So he tells them, I want you to do a remembrance. I want you to have a festival. I want you to have a time of celebration. I don't want your kids or grandkids to forget what I did for your grandparents way back in the day when I took care of them and what I did for them, I can do for you. So that's the setup for this this Feast of Tabernacles. And there were several significant things that would happen during that week-long celebration. And one of the premier things was the lighting of these candelabras. There were four huge brass candelabras that that were in the temple area around the court of the women. And many scholars say those things were so massive and so impressive that when they lit those candles, you could actually see the light from the candelabras, those massive candelabras from miles away. The city had a glow about it. The temple area was the focus. And so the lighting of the candles was significant and watching those candles burn at night was powerful. Because the parents had an opportunity, a great teaching tool to say, kids, just as that light is lighting us, just as that light is warming us, that light represents what God did for our forefathers. How he brought them through and how he cared for them and how he led them into the promised land. And we're here today because of that light. So it was in this setting and at that scene that Jesus sees an incredible opportunity to reintroduce himself to these people in a new way. And so you see the setup for our text. And if you have your Bible, you might look at this one verse in John chapter eight, the verse is verse 12. Notice what Jesus says. Many believe he was saying this when hundreds and hundreds were gathered to watch them light these candelabras. So suddenly you have this ceremony where the candelabras are being lit and Jesus steps forward and he speaks, note again to the people, and here's what he says. I. I am the light of the world. Man, how impressive and how powerful. Talk about seizing the moment. Talk about maximizing the moment. Talk about a captive audience riveted to that scene. These people were watching and they were mesmerized and fixated. And suddenly Jesus steps on the stage and he says, look, I am the light of the world. And whoever whoever, religious, irreligious, it doesn't matter where you've come from or where you've been or what you've done, whoever will follow me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. He's promising not just light, he's promising life. What a powerful moment that was when Jesus steps on the scene and declares, I am the light of the world. The first thing I would have you to consider is his light was exposed. He's bursting on the scene. He's moving them, if you will, from a religious, uh, 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 a re- a religious experience. He's moving them from a religious ritual. He's moving them from that to a brand new way of understanding God. He's moving them from this religious experience and from this religious tradition, can I say it this way, into a relationship with himself. He's saying this is powerful imagery. There's nothing wrong with this. This is a reminder of what God has done in the past. But God is doing a new thing, and I'm here today to say, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Just as, my, just as God was with your forefathers, he'll be with you. Just as God took care of them, he'll take care of you. Just as God led them, he will lay, lead you. And it will not be through a religious ritual, it will be through a relationship with Jesus. I am the light of the world. So you see Jesus exposed. Now when you first read of Jesus in the gospels, you see him as the baby, right, in the manger. We celebrated at Christmas time, and I'll get to talk to a lot of people who I last talked to at Christmas time. that'll be here next weekend. I'm excited about it seeing them again. <laughs> but we celebrate him in the manger. And then you read of him again as Mary brought him to the temple for circumcision. And she lays him into the arms of of the priest Simeon. And Simeon had prayed, God, let me live until the day when I can see the Messiah, when I can see the Lord's Christ. And the minute Mary lays that little eight-day-old bundle of glory in the arms of Simeon, you read it in the scripture. He looks up, no doubt with tears streaming down his cheeks, and he says, I'm ready to go to heaven now because my eyes have seen the Lord's Christ. I'm holding in my arms the Messiah. So we read of that. You read of the shepherds and you read of the wise men who, come to, who came to see Jesus. And then there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a period of time. We don't know what's going on. We don't know about preschool. <laughs> we don't know about kindergarten. We, we don't know about the terrible twos. There's a lot of things we don't know until we pick up again when he's 12 years old. And now the scripture again records that Jesus breaks away from Mary. He's in the temple and he's sitting with the doctors and the lawyers. And they're blown away at how much he knows for being such a small child. And his mama's trying to find him. She's panicked. She doesn't know where he is. She's looking everywhere. Mama Bear has lost one of her cubs, and she is, she's panicked and she looks for him frantically and suddenly sees him. And he's there in the company of those learned. And she spots him. And as I said last week, she she had to have said, Jesus Christ. Where have you been? (laughs) It's just there, I'm sorry. When they come in kind of over the plate, right down the middle, it's hard not to swing. (laughs) And he goes, Mom, and I love this line. I love how he responds. He said, I have to be about my father's business. I came into this world on purpose, and at 12 years old, he understood that God had a purpose for his life, but we don't read about him from 12 years old until many scholars believe he was probably about 30. Most people believe that his father, Joseph, had probably died somewhere in that point of time because we don't read anything else about Joseph. We know his dad was a carpenter. So we assume that Jesus, probably growing up in the home of a carpenter, had learned that trade. So he was probably a very skilled person, very creative. He knew how to make something out of basically nothing and make a profit from it. And so he was a very skillful uh, craftsman and businessman. But we really don't know much about him until John the Baptist. You remember him? John the Baptist, kind of this quirky throwback to what they had read about these Old Testament prophets were looking like. He dressed funny, he ate crazy food, and he just, he, he preached Uh, with such fire and passion. It reminded them of what they had heard about when they read about these Old Testament prophets. And John would tell them, I'm not the one, but I'm preparing the way for the one who's coming behind me. He said, I'm the forerunner. I'm in the little boat, but there's a big boat coming behind me. I'm just setting the stage. I'm getting everything ready because the main event is about to show up. And when the main event gets here, John said, I will then decrease and he will increase. I'll step off the stage. He'll step on the stage. And in John one, he's baptizing on the banks of the Jordan. And here comes Jesus. And we know Jesus was probably not recognized by most people because there's no big deal made about him being in their presence. Now after that, he's a big deal. After that, he can't go anywhere without crowds following him. But in that moment, as his ministry is launched, he's he's anonymous. He had been laboring all those years in anonymity, just doing what he's supposed to do each and every day, preparing himself for the moment that he would step on that stage. And what an incredible, what a beautiful example that is to all of us. Not worry about when you're going to get promoted. Not worry about when you step on the stage. Your job is to prepare. His job is to promote. And so he had been all those years preparing himself. He was getting ready for this moment. And John says in John 1.29, behold, behold. We would say, wait, wait, hey, everybody, let me get your attention. Stop, look, listen. Behold, he said, the Lamb of God, God's sacrifice. The the sacrifice that will end all sacrifices. Behold God's sacrificial lamb and this man will take away the sins of the world. He's a big deal. (laughs) And Jesus steps onto the scene. And from that moment after his baptism, his ministry is launched. And he begins to pick up metaphors and he begins to use teachable moments and he begins to do all that he can to say, I'm the Messiah. I've come into this world to go to a cross to bear your sin, to raise again so that I can connect you who are in darkness with a God who is light. And you see in this moment when he says I am the light, you have light exposed. He beautifully displays the love of God. If you wanna know what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you wanna know what God thinks, look at Jesus. If you don't want to, want to know what God would do, look at Jesus. <laughs> he was in the beginning. He was the Word. He was the Word with God. He was the Word that was God, John 1 says. And He was the Word that tabernacled, that dwelt. And it's an incredible picture given the setting of Feast of Tabernacles because no doubt John had that concept in mind where he said, just as these people are living in tents All around this uh, temple area, he's coming into the world, Messiah, in flesh, tabernacling in flesh, in a tent, if you will, a temporary dwelling. He will be God in a tent, God in a tabernacle. And his point is to dwell among us, to be one of us. And so you see this powerful idea that light is exposed. Second thing I don't want you to miss is not only is this light exposed, but this light is experienced. The purpose of his light was to affect those who were hit by it. Everything light touches, it it, it changes and light is invincible against darkness. You don't go into a room and turn on the dark. (laughs) You go into the room and turn on a light. And when the light is shining there, it has an effect on everything. One of the things, this is really deep, but one of the things light will do when you experience it, are you ready, light will enlighten you. It wasn't that deep it will enlighten. What do I mean by that? I didn't say illuminate. That means it shines around us. But when you experience this, he enlightens you. Think about enlighten, enlighten, light inside, right? He enlightens me. Where I didn't have comprehension, I have some now. Where I didn't have any understanding, I have more now. Where I was dead in trespasses and sins, I have life because I have light and his light is the life of men. So one of the things he does is enlighten. Listen to Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your heart be enlightened. Well, if my heart can have eyes that can be lightened, can't they be darkened as well? Does that stand to reason that there are some people who, what is the heart? We said last week, it is your mind, it is your emotion, it is your will. If that can be enlightened, it can also be darkened. In fact, I can show you, the Bible talks about, listen to this, 2 Corinthians four. 4 the God of this world, which is an expression for the devil, has blinded the minds. Mind is a heart. He has blinded the minds of those who do not believe that they might not see the light the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. So the devil is in the the midst of covering light, God's in the midst of, of showing light. And what happens to you ladies and gentlemen, when you step into that light and you receive Jesus as your savior, not only are you illuminated, you are enlightened. God begins to show you things you didn't see before. He may not answer all your questions, but he will at least give you the confidence and the trust that he's working things for your good in his glory. It's an understanding and a comprehension that you didn't have before you knew him, but now that you know him, he begins to enlighten you as well as illuminate you. So it's a process. So this light enlightens, this light, by the way, protects. It's easier to get around when you see where you're going. Isn't that another profound thought? (laughs) Listen to 1 John 2.10. The one who loves his brother lives in the light. And the one who's living in the light finds that there is no cause for stumbling. Man, when the light's on, if you stumble, it's your own fault. (laughs) You just got distracted. Because you can see where you go because you have light. And God is saying, look, I'll show you where you need to go. I'll tell you what you need to do. I'll give you light. And part of what protects you is the light. You can make good decisions. You can make better decisions. I told you before, it's not your five-year plan that's your challenge or your five-week plan, it's your five-minute plan. Look, if you take care of the next five minutes, the next five years tend to take care of themselves. And he'll give you enough light to make good decisions. So light enlightens, light protects. By the way, light purifies. Any of you have a grandmother or a mother who used to hang the sheets on the clothesline to dry? They did that in my family. They didn't do it to be hip, edgy, cool, or natural. They did it because they didn't have a dryer. (laughs) But one of the effects of hanging laundry on on the line is the sunlight is a great disinfectant. What's the point? The point is light has a way of purifying the people it touches. God has a way of cleansing and purifying when we are experiencing his light. 1 John 1, 7, walk in the light as he is in the light, and you will have fellowship with the Father, and the blood of his Son cleanses us from all sin. Walk in the light. He cleanses you, disinfects you, purifies you, right? It's the experience you have when you walk in in this light. And not only that, life animates. Life brings, light brings life. There's no life apart from light. Uh, you you study this process of photosynthesis, right? Of bringing about life as a result of light touching it. First John, uh, or John 1, 4, in him was life and that life was the light of men. The Bible says in in John, uh, John 1, 9, he is the true light that lights everyone that comes into the world. In Romans 12, verse three, it says, uh, he has dealt to everyone the measure of faith. Not a measure, the measure, meaning it didn't take more faith for one person to come to Jesus than another. It doesn't take more faith for an atheist to trust Christ than for someone who has been raised in church all their life. We start off with a little bit of light. We start off with a little bit of faith. You have exactly what you need at this moment to exercise, to trust God. You have just enough light that you need to receive him and to experience him. And what he was doing is he was moving these people from this religious ritual and this understanding that they had of embracing what he used to do and where he used to be into the reality of his presence and how that presence of God would transform every part of their life. The challenge he had is not unlike the challenge we have. And that is, people tend to feel comfortable with their religion and their religious experiences. So to move them from that into a relationship with Christ, for some, is revolutionary. Let me tell you what religion does. Religion always looks for God where it last saw him. It goes back to where it last saw him. You remember when Mary and the others went to the tomb? And you remember what the angel said? He's not here. He's not here. You're looking for where for him where you last saw him. He's not here. He is risen. Religion goes back to that moment in time where I was connected with God, and now that I feel disconnected from him, I feel like the only way I can get reconnected with him is to go back to that place, back to that church, or that style of worship, or that style of ministry that I was in when I felt so connected to God. And now that I'm away from that, I feel like sometimes the only way I can get back to that is I got to go back and have that experience again. That's religion. Religion always looks for God where it last saw him. And there's nothing wrong with having a great heritage. There's nothing wrong with having wonderful memories. I sometimes will drive back and go to the old church building where my dad and mom ministered for years, where I grew up. It's just kind of a a nostalgic thing for me. It's even kind of a spiritual thing for me to kind of go back and relive that. But let me tell you, none of that's there anymore. Oh, the building is there and a different church is there. My dad's not there. Mom's not there. The choir, they're not there anymore. (laughs) There's no one in there singing the songs that I grew up here. There's nobody doing ministry the way I, I grew up doing. I'm just saying, I can go back and I understand people wanting to go back, but there's so many people that get hung up on that and they get so caught up in a religious experience or a religious place in their life and they can't get past the fact that gods he's not there anymore he's not here. (laughs) He's risen. It, It never really was the building anyway. It never really was the choir in my childhood. It never was. It was God. It was always him. Now he worked in that building and he worked through that choir and he worked through all those experiences, but I'm saying they're not there now. So, if that is going to determine my connection to God, I'm going to be frustrated and never happy no matter where I go because I'm constantly looking in every church that I attend for what I had that isn't there anymore. Because religion always wants to go back to the place where it last saw Him. But I want to suggest to you, God's doing a new thing. He's not here, He's risen. <laughs> He's going to do something new in your life and something exciting in your life. And he was saying to those people, You're not going to follow a pillar of cloud. It'll never happen again. There's not going to be another pillar of fire. You may hang out in, the, in a tent, but you're probably going to go to a NASCAR race now. You're not gonna be in a temple somewhere. You're not gonna be experiencing leadership of God taking you through a wilderness to some place called the promised land. It will never happen again. He was moving them from this dependency on a religious experience into a real vibrant relationship with himself. One other side note. You remember the story in Exodus when the serpents appeared and were biting the people and God said to Moses, put a serpent on a pole and lift it up and tell the people, look and live.'" And so the people looked to the serpent on the pole that was prophetic about the cross one day where Jesus would come and take away the sins of the world. And God did a miracle in healing his people and a powerful lesson, by the way. But when you fast forward that experience over into the book of 2 Kings, where Hezekiah now is the king, God is displeased with his people. He's upset with them. Hezekiah perceives God's displeasure and he goes before the Lord and he says, what do we need to do? to get your favor back on us. You know what God said? He said, you're guilty of idolatry. You're guilty of idolatry. I, it has Hezcach, what do you mean? He says, um, you're dragging around that old crusty brass pole with a serpent on it, and you've made that thing an object of your worship. In fact, the Hebrew word is nehushtan. It was a derisive Hebrew expression that meant little brass thing. Now what happened? God took a symbol at one point in time that he used powerfully in the life of the people and the people mistakenly deified the symbol instead of the savior. And they drug that thing around for centuries until God finally said, I've had it, loosely translated. Get rid of that thing and come back to me. And can I tell you for people, sometimes religion is that thing. The style of worship is that thing you, you, you want to go back to that time, to that moment, to that experience. And I'm just saying, you got to be careful that you're not worshiping the thing and not the Savior. And so he's laying it out there for him. He's saying, look, when light comes into your life, it'll change everything about you. I am the light. Third thought, we'll go home. This is a light that is to be expressed. Did you see what he said? I am the light of the world. He didn't say I'm the light of the church. Some people think that the, the goal is to get people saved and locked into a church and just kind of adopt the philosophy, us four, no more, shut the door. <laughs> we are the conclave of the completely convinced. No shirt, no shoes, no sinners. <laughs> and so we tend to forget that the work doesn't end, it's a birth, the new birth. Jesus said you must be born again. Life doesn't end with birth, it begins there. When you get light, it's not over now that you're in the light. You're in a light now so you can express the experience. Listen to Matthew 5 14. Jesus said, You are the light of the world. You're to be a reflection of who He is. We're like moons, He's the sun. <laughs> We're to reflect who He is. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shone in our hearts, why? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He shined in us so that he may now shine through us. You know, light's focus determines its power. Light's focus determines its power. We have light bulbs in our house and it's great. It has a purpose, but a light bulb is light diffused. Diffused, It doesn't have power beyond illuminating the room. And that's good. You need that. But did you know when you focus light, scientists have learned how to focus light. You know what focus light becomes? A laser beam. And a laser can cut through steel. What is a church? A lot of churches are diffused light. Confused and diffused. We're just little old bulbs out here. Kumbaya, my Lord. We've lost our focus. But when a church gets focused on who God's created us to be, Luke 19 10 Son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. That's focus light. And when we're focus light, the gates of hell cannot prevail against focus light. We're to be focused. We're to love who Jesus loved and try to reach who Jesus tried to reach. We're to be light. I heard that story of a little boy sitting with his grandmother in a service, very traditional church, looking at these beautiful stained glass windows. And he asked his grandmother, he said, who's those people in that stained glass window? She said, they're saints. They're the saints. And he says, look how the light shines through the saints. That's exactly what we're to be. We're to be saints that light shines through them. Can I tell you as I close this morning, as we prepare for Easter, the greatest threat humanity. It's not, listen, it's not the warming of the planet. Stay with me. It's the darkening of the planet. It's not this planet getting warmer. It's this planet getting darker without the love and the light of Jesus. You know what would change this world? What would change this world if we did what Jesus told those lawyers that day? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And don't quit there. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know what love is? God is love. Who is love? Love is light. What is love and light? Love and light is life. It would change this world. Let's be a church that's not diffused, confused. Let's be focused, intentional. Come next weekend bringing someone. You don't want to change your worship experiences when you have someone sitting next to you who doesn't know Jesus. It'll change how you look at what we do. It'll change how you you listen to me. You'll be out there praying for me going, oh, for the love of God, Bill, don't say anything stupid. (laughs) And I'll be up here connecting with you saying, thank you, keep praying for that, don't say anything stupid. No, but seriously, you'll be interested in their experience. You know what happens when church becomes all about me? It's I've forgotten to see church through the eyes of a friend who doesn't know Jesus. That changes how you look at your church, it changes how you pray, it changes how you worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that never returns void. Help us to experience your light so that we may express your light. And this week we're rolling into the Super Bowl for Church World. This is a great opportunity. We won't have this again until Christmas time. So help us to use this week, as Lainey said, to prepare our hearts, and as Rob said, to invite our friends who are disconnected from you. I pray, Father, we could see an incredible move of your Holy Spirit in those services this coming week, drawing people. You said if we lift you up, you'll draw people. So God, we can't convert empty chairs. So I pray this building will be packed with people who need Jesus. And I pray now for my own heart, for the hearts of all who will be participating and serving and for all who will be attending and bringing that we'll see in this church your Holy Spirit move in a powerful way. I pray for my friends this morning who may be disconnected from you. Maybe they're watching online. I pray right where they are, they'll humble their heart and say, God, with all that I know about me, I trust all that I know about you for others who just need someone to pray for them and just to encourage them before they leave. I pray now, as soon as I dismiss, they'll find their way here at the front. Let someone spend a few minutes just to love on them and pray for them before they go. Thank you, Lord, for the joy of knowing Jesus, the light of the world. In your name I pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you so much for tuning in today with us. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us so that we can follow up with you this week by visiting metchurch.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week.